Let us turn in our copies of God's Word now to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 7. We will begin our reading in verse 18 and read through verse 23. Hear the word of our God and our King. Then the disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things. And John, calling two of his disciples, to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And when the man had come when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And that very hour he cured many of infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits. And to many blind he gave sight. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. We come again, and we are again considering that question, who is Jesus? And this is, as I pointed out last time, this is one of those questions that everyone asked. And there has been a lot of ink and a lot of paper used over the course of history in seeking to answer this question. There has been a lot of blood shed over this very question. Who is Jesus? And we learned last time as we considered verses 11 through 17 that Jesus, in those verses, Luke identifies Jesus as the Lord. And he hearkens back by highlighting the compassion that the Lord had for this widow in her loss of her only son. And we noted that this points to Jesus as Jehovah, the Lord, the Lord God, as he revealed himself to Moses. But now, now he seeks to press that a little bit more. And he takes up the question again, who is Jesus? Now I want you to note First, that we're told in verse 18, the disciples of John went and reported to John concerning these things. And so this is pointing us directly back to the previous events and the context in our present chapter, namely the healing of the centurion servant as well as the raising of the widow's son. This report went about 
uh, concerning Jesus to all the region of Judea. But also, we are told in, in verse 18 that the, the disciples of John the Baptist specifically carried this report back to John the Baptist. And there's something interesting that happens. There's actually two very interesting things that happen. So the first that we're going to consider is a very interesting question. That's the first thing. A very interesting question. And the other will be a very interesting answer. But I want you to notice that when John hears this report, what does John do? Well, first, it's very clear. He hears the report. He calls two disciples. We're not told which ones. Two of his disciples. And he sent them to Jesus. And he sent them with a very specific very pointed question. Are you the coming one? Or do we look for another? They are not they are not being given an ultimatum by John. They are given an either or question. And John is sending them to Jesus to ask this question. But I want to break this down a little bit more before we get to the disciples actually going. And I want us to consider first, why, why does John select two disciples? Why does he select two? And, and why is Luke, why is Luke careful to point that out? It's not just that he sent a disciple or disciples. But specifically, he sends two disciples. Well, I think the answer is quite obvious. And that is, the law of God specifies that, that in order for a case to be established, in order for eyewitness testimony to be considered credible, there has to be a minimum of two eyewitnesses. And so what he is doing is he is ensuring through sending to that whatever the answer is that Jesus gives that it is a sure answer not because Jesus would give anything other than a sure and certain answer but he wants to make sure that according to the law of God that he has the required two witness minimum and so he sends two disciples but perhaps we would also say, well, well, why does John send to instead of going himself? Why doesn't he take two disciples to ask Jesus this question? Well, that is also pretty clear and pretty straightforward. If you remember where John is at this time, he is incapable of going. Herod has him locked in prison. He is clearly allowed visitors, but he is locked up. He is not going to be released to go. A preacher himself who was locked up for being a preacher, he's not going to be released to go and see another preacher. Especially when John's ministry had struck a very personal chord with Herod because he called out Herod's sin. And we are specifically told that John was locked up 
for that very thing. Because he preached the gospel, and in preaching the gospel, he called out Herod for his sin of adultery. So Herod locked him up. Now, another question that, that we could ask in this is why? Why does John send disciples? We've already addressed why does he send two? Why does he not go? Well, why does he send disciples at all? Why is it? Some have suggested that he sends disciples because he himself is discouraged. And the ministry, the gospel ministry, can be a very discouraging work. And it can be discouraging for any number of reasons. It could be because you don't see the fruit that you desire to see. It could be discouraging because people just don't seem to listen. It could be discouraging because you're being faithful to the Word of God. And then, as in the case of John, he gets thrown in prison for it. There's any number of reasons that discouragement can and does come in the ministry. And so some have suggested and speculated that this is why John sent the disciples with this question. Essentially for his own benefit. Because John the Baptist, they say, was discouraged. But there's another, there's another suggestion that J.C. Ryle puts forward. And, and the more that I think about it, the more that I lean towards his proposal. You see, J.C. Ryle suggests that the reason, the reason John sends his disciples to ask this question has nothing to do at all with John's present state. He rejects the idea that John is discouraged. And instead, he says that it's a pastoral concern for his disciples. That John was no doubt becoming increasingly aware of the fact that his time on earth was limited, and his time on earth was about to be up. That he, as it were, saw the writing on the wall, that Herod would take his life. And so, so then, J.C. Ryle suggests that it's not, it's not his own discouragement, but it's care for his disciples. And it's, it is specifically this desire that there not be schism between the disciples of John the Baptist and the disciples of Jesus. Remember, John's own testimony about who he is. He said he's the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. John the Baptist was sent as a forerunner to the Messiah, to Jesus. And he's always concerned about that, being a forerunner. And he even goes so far at one point to explicitly state to his disciples when they com complained and lamented at the fact that Jesus was gaining more traction in the, in the region. He said, I must decrease and Christ must increase. And so then, according to Dr. Ryle, John the Baptist sends these disciples so that they would know with certainty who Jesus is and so that they would be led 
particularly after John's death, though I'm sure John would not have cared if they went before his death, but so that after his death, at the very least, they would follow Christ. And so he sends them, and he sends two disciples again, so that a sure witness is established. And they come to Jesus, and they ask him a question. They say to Jesus in verse 20, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And this is where we get an interesting answer. We read in Matthew 16, just a moment ago, and we saw that the the Pharisees and the Sadducees did something similar. That they requested and demanded a sign from heaven as a way of validating who Jesus is. And I want you to recall Jesus' response to them. In fact, before we dive further into Luke, let's, let's go back and review for just a moment. In Matthew 16, verse 1, the Pharisees and Sadducees came, testing Jesus, asked that he would show a sign from heaven. And what does he say? Well, he says, in short, you know how to interpret the skies. You know how to say, based upon how the sky looks, if it's going to be a good day or a bad day, if it's going to have good weather or bad weather. And then he condemns them saying, hypocrites, you know how to, how to discern the face of the sky, but you do not, you cannot discern the signs of the times. And what's the conclusion in this? Well, first he says that it's a wicked and adulterous generation that seeks after a sign And then he gives this very strange, no sign will be given except for the sign of Jonah. And then he walks away. Now, I want you to notice the difference. Because there's a massive difference. The The Pharisees and the Sadducees come to Jesus. They demand a sign. We're told that they're testing him. And Jesus responds with, you should know, essentially, He said, you should be able to discern the signs of the times. And then he calls them a wicked and adulterous generation and walks away. But but with the disciples of John, notice what he does. We are told, verse 21, and that very hour, or as some put it, that same hour, Jesus cured Many, many with infirmities, with afflictions and evil spirits, and to many, to many blind, he gave sight. I would also point out, this is the only instance, at the very least, the only instance that I have been able to find, where Jesus, in answer to the question, Are you the coming one? Are you the Christ? Or any other like question. This is the only time that he answers that. That he grants the request for a sign in validating who he is. 
So the first thing that we need to learn from this is that the intent of the, of the person asking matters. Intention matters. And, and we, we saw this all throughout, right? Even, even in the Old Testament, when you have people who want and who desire to keep the prescribed manner of worship, but for some reason, such as um, Passover comes around, they want to keep the Passover, but they've touched a dead body, and so they're not able to. What is the provision? The provision is observe it a month later. That this is always the way in which God interacts with his people. It is always, always giving an answer fitting to the heart of the person asking. We see this in another way in the life of Jesus. Whenever he is asked a question by his by the Pharisees or the Sadducees and the scribes, his attitude and his response is one way. He's very harsh. He's very critical. And it's a way of saying, you should know better. When his disciples ask, he is still critical at times, like when he says, oh, you of little faith. But he answers. And then when he meets someone like the Samaritan woman at the well, his approach is, again, altogether different. He tailors his approach to the, to the individuals that are asking and approaching him. It's not a one response fits all. And so in this instance where you have scribes and Pharisees on the one hand who will come and they will say, um, show us a sign. Show us a sign from heaven to prove who you are. He calls them a wicked and adulterous generation. But when, when the disciples of John come with this same question, he responds, granting their request. And not just in a little way. Like He could have gone and healed one person with an infirmity, one person with an affliction, one person with an evil spirit, and one blind person, and that would have sufficed. But we're told that he healed many. And that he did it the very hour, the same instance that they requested it. He answered their request. Actually, he answered the question, Who are you? Are you the coming one? But he did so, interestingly enough, pointing back to Scripture. And he pointed back to Scripture without quoting Scripture. But would they have known this? Well, even if the disciples didn't, John the Baptist would have. He would have known. Remember again, his father was a priest. So he would have been raised and taught very thoroughly in the law. And then as the forerunner of Christ, he would have been well instructed as to his place and his particular standing. His job in the covenant community. And so when Jesus answers in this way and then turns and says, Go tell John the things that you have seen and heard. He is directing John and John's disciples back to the scriptures like Isaiah 35. Where we read about those who are sick and lame and blind being cleansed by the Lord. And that's what Jesus does. He answers the question, are you the coming one? 
And he answers it by pointing to the miracles that the coming servant Messiah would accomplish. And he directs them back to Scripture as a way of saying all the things that you see in Scripture that the Messiah will do, these things are done. Beloved, one of the things that we are faced with today, we are faced with a temptation to go anywhere other than Scripture to answer the question, who is Jesus? Anywhere other than Scripture. And people go anywhere other than Scripture all the time. And you hear that reflected as as someone says, well, my Jesus would love me regardless. My Jesus loves unconditionally. My Jesus doesn't judge. My Jesus said that it's okay and I should go and get a divorce. My Jesus said that it's okay for me to pursue this sinful course of action. But beloved, the problem is that if we have our own little Jesus, we do not have the Jesus of the scriptures. If we have our own little Jesus who conforms more to my tastes and my desires and my wants, we don't have the Messiah. And that's, that's something that we need to wrestle with. If our understanding of Jesus in his person and his work differs from the word of God, we have a false Jesus. If my Jesus, if your Jesus is not, is not the Son, God in the flesh, who comes and takes away the sin of the world, takes it away. He doesn't sweep it under a rug. He takes it away. If your Jesus doesn't take away sin, your Jesus isn't God's Jesus. So Jesus, in answering this question, he provides these miracles that go straight back to Scripture. Straight to Scripture. And they highlight who this Messiah would be. And in Jesus pointing to them, he is saying, I am this Messiah. Without uttering the words, Jesus is saying... That he is the Christ. He is the promised Messiah. He is the suffering servant. He is the prophet greater than Moses. You see, all of the diseases in this world, all of the physical ailments, All of the evil spirits and the demon possessions, they're all a result of sin. Every single one of them. And we're told as much that Satan is a fallen angel. He's a fallen spirit. He's fallen because he sinned against God. 
We are fallen human beings because we sin against God. And what we see declared in his miracles is that this Messiah, Jesus, is able, he has the power, and he does reverse the effects of sin. So that where sin has resulted, even if it's merely the corruption of our physical flesh, where sin has resulted in things like blindness and lameness and leprosy and deafness and death itself. Jesus reverses all of these things. He makes the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised. But more than that, Jesus doesn't just address the physical components of our life. And that's part of the problem with things like prosperity teachers, like Joe Olstein and other popular prosperity preachers, is that they proclaim and they declare that if you follow Jesus, that you'll get a bunch of this wealth. And if you don't get health and wealth and blessings, that it's an indication that you're not following Jesus And of course, sadly, what they mean by following Jesus is giving money to their ministry. But you see, the Jesus of Scripture addresses not just the physical component. He addresses the soul. And it's a good message. It is good news. And it's preached to those who most desperately need it. Here we are told it is preached to the poor. Think about that. The poor. How many celebrity preachers do you know who would go and preach to the poor? You know what the problem with being poor and being a prosperity preacher They can't support your ministry. Jesus was not merely some wandering rabbi. He was one who taught and preached authoritatively, but he preached to people who most desperately needed his good news and yet could not afford to pay for his services. He preached the gospel to them. And this is the sign that Jesus gives. In addition to the physical healings and the casting out of evil spirits, this is where Jesus points that the Messiah who would heal physical ailments and who would preach the gospel to the poor, he answers the question by doing the very things that the Messiah would do. And so really, if you think of it, the disciples of John received a blessing that according to what we find in Scripture, no other people got. They pointedly asked, are you the coming one? Jesus knew what they meant. Jesus knew they were asking, are you the Christ? 
And even if you recall back again to Matthew 16, when Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And they said, some, Elijah, Jeremiah, some of the other prophets. And then he says, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus directs them to tell no one. The disciples of John come, being sent by John. They ask essentially the same question of Jesus. They turn his own question on him. And he answers in a very definitive way. But then he concludes his answer with this. And blessed is he who is not offended at me. I want you to pay attention to what he's saying here. In our day and age, people get offended over just about everything. And it's a sad, it's a sad reality. It's a sad thing that we witness. But one of the things that people especially get offended at is, is the idea that, that Jesus would presume the right to tell them what to do. That Jesus would dare to say that they are anything other than good people. That Jesus would dare to assume that what they want to do is sin. And so Jesus pronounces a blessing here. And the blessing is, blessed are those not offended because of me. Now we can think of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were offended of Jesus. And the Pharisees understood who Jesus claimed to be. And in a lot of ways, that is why they took such great offense. You see, they understood that Jesus claimed to be God. That Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. The Christ. And that is the precise reason they hated him. And I would suggest to you that in the church today, we still have Pharisees. The Pharisees were really people who, who had become so obsessed with law-keeping that they no longer cared about the heart of the law. They didn't care about what the law truly pointed to. They wanted... To write their laws, keep them too, and then call everyone else to observe the same things. That's what they wanted. And when Jesus comes along, and when Jesus starts doing things contrary to their laws, not contrary to God's laws, they hate him for it. And we're actually going to be getting to one of these uh, very specific examples in, in the coming weeks where a Pharisee invites Jesus to dinner and a woman who is a sinner, Jesus allows to touch his feet. And, and in fact, even before that, 
The Pharisees condemned Jesus for being a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You see, the Pharisees had had elevated themselves to the point where even the mere idea of going to people who need the gospel, the idea of going to people who needed to hear the good news was so disgusting that they wouldn't even tolerate having them over for dinner. They wouldn't even tolerate really having them just around them. Religion for them was a show. They were the first with the good Jew checklist. How do you be a a good Hebrew, a good Israelite? Well, here's your list of thousands of laws. 600 some Old Testament laws within the thousands of ways that that could be taken out of context. Like, as I've highlighted before, some of them going so far as to say, if your water container required taking the lid off to drink, they said you violated the principle of not working on the Sabbath for removing a lid. But what's the purpose of that command? Is it don't work? Or is it spend time with your God? And that's a silly example. But we need to understand we do the same things. I have heard time and time again since coming to Denison that there's a drug problem in our small town. I've heard that we have drug dealers, that we have people who are uh, un, uh, perhaps we would call them untouchables. You see, the Pharisee would say, keep them at arm's length. Keep them as untouchables. It is better that they die and go to hell than hear the gospel. Where Christ says, come to me, all who are heavy laden, all who have heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. You see, it's true, Jesus was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But what's not true is that he didn't leave them as sinners. He welcomed He welcomed them into his presence. He spent time with them, but he didn't leave them as they were. He didn't leave them as tax collectors, or at least as unjust tax collectors. He didn't leave them as blatant sinners. And yet because of that, there were those, sadly, in the religious elite, who hated him for that. So our question today, do you understand Jesus to be the Christ, the Messiah? 
Do you understand that Jesus is the promised coming one from the Old Testament? And do your words match your life? Do your words match your life? Do you say Jesus is Christ? Jesus is the only Savior of sinners? Do you say that? And do you share the gospel as a result? Do you say that? And are you gracious towards people? Or... Are you quick to receive bad reports? You see, being in Christ ought to be an all-of-life endeavor. If you think about Christianity in another land, we'll say the Middle East, To make it as thought-provoking as possible, we could say Iran. Do you realize that merely being baptized marks you as a Christian? And so being baptized has day-to-day implications. It's a once completed thing with ongoing effects. Those ongoing effects are to be both in how you live, but in places like the Middle East and Iran and other Islamic or pagan nations, that day-to-day effect is it, it marks you. And it marks you for death. And if you take Christ's command seriously, like in the Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. You see, Muslims won't care too much if you are evangelizing Jews, if you're evangelizing Hindus. But if you want to evangelize a Muslim, that's that's a step too far. But if we really believe that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the real sin savior, if we really believe he is who he claimed to be, that should, it ought to drive us in every relationship of life. And if it doesn't, if it doesn't impact how we live, then really we ought to ask this question, do I actually believe it? Do I actually believe that Jesus is the Savior? We're not not created, we're not saved, redeemed, so that we can go spend our weeks in our homes while the world burns around us. We are called into covenant relationship with God so that we may then go out and call others 
so that we may go to the highways and the byways, so we may go where others would dare not and call them to Jesus. Not partake in their sin. Call them to Jesus. Who is Jesus? He declares it quite simply. He is the Messiah. His works, his works bear testimony to who he is. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this reminder. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you, O oh God, that while we were yet sinners, that you sent Christ to die for us. We thank you for the love that you have shown in sending your Son. That whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God, we ask that you would work in our hearts to make our profession match our walk. Or rather, make our walk match our profession. That what we say we believe would come out in how we live and work and play. Father, we ask that you would convict us Truly convict us that Christ is not a Savior, but the only Savior. We ask that you would give us hands and feet that prize that above all else and give us gracious dispositions of heart and mind that when we see others, when we see sinners, we would see people who need a Savior. Cause us, O oh God, to be unsatisfied until we have shared the gospel with them. Help us to profess Christ as Savior, not only with our lips, but with our deeds as well. And this we pray for His honor and His glory and the, that his kingdom would be expanded. Amen.